0: We have been going through the book of Hebrews at RUF. We believe that the Bible is God's Word and that it's the place where we find truth. We don't believe it's the only place you find truth, but we believe it's the only rule for faith and practice. It's the ultimate truth for how we're to live and what we're to believe. It's not the only source. Lots of places God has spoken truthfully through His creation and also through His Word. But His Word is sufficient for us to understand the ways of salvation and how we're to live, what he made us for as human beings. We've been going through this letter that was written in the first century to a group of Christians, a small little persecuted group of Christians in the city of Rome. This letter is called the Hebrews because it's obvious from various places in this letter that they were of Jewish background. And now they are really being tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to just being Jews, because that is a way that they'll be able to escape from the persecution, okay? So we've been going through this letter all last semester. Uh, I do podcast these messages. If you just go to iTunes and look up podcast Belmont, R-U-F. I can't remember if it's R-U-F at Belmont or Belmont R-U-F, but you put those two words in and you will find it. So if you ever want to kind of catch up on what you might have missed, I also... Take the outlines, and I turn those into a PDF, and that's on the podcast as well, so you can download the outline if you want. Um, anyway, so we've been going through this, this letter for the whole, since the beginning of the fall, and now we're in chapter 11, and then after chapter 11, it kind of transitions into more kind of practical, how then shall we live, sorts of stuff, right? So chapter 11 has often been called the Hall of Fame of Faith. I don't know if you know tonight, but uh, today there were several people elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, right? Some notable uh, people that weren't elected. If you know anything about the steroid scandal whatnot, Barry Bonds was not elected today. Roger Clemens was not elected today. But some other significant people were, so there's all kinds of controversy. If you're into sports, and since it's Belmont, I'm sure you guys all knew about this, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because... You know, people call Hebrews 11 the hall of fame, of faith. That's really not a very good way to look at it. Because some of these people are real scoundrels. Like Jephthah is in this list. Do you know anything about Jephthah? Um, Jephthah is this guy in the book of Judges who maybe sacrifices his own daughter. We're not quite sure if he sacrifices her or if he just keeps her from being married and makes her be unwed for the rest of her life. It's hard, it's hard to tell. The text is somewhat ambiguous. But you look at Jephthah and you're like, what, really? So, you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting. And so I think that one of the things that that shows us is the point of this chapter is not look at all these great people in the Bible and try to be like them. There's like this really horrible children's song. Maybe you've sung it. Some of you could probably grew up going to vacation Bible school or that sort of thing. Uh, I'm ashamed to say that it's actually in the hymnal of the Presbyterian church. Uh, it's a song called Dare to be a Daniel. Right? Which is not at all what the point of the book of Daniel is. Right? And it's not the point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about people who had a strong God. Not people who got it all together, and we should try to be like them. Tim Keller said one time, there is in the end only two ways to read the Bible. It's either about God or about yourself. And a lot of the ways people read the Old Testament in particular as it's just basically telling me how I should live rather than telling me how faithful God is, how faithful he is to his promise in spite of his people's sin and their unbelief. Even the heroes of the Bible have huge flaws. I mean, God uses Noah to preserve the human race, and it's hardly any time after the flood is over when he gets drunk and exposes his nakedness. It's not a good story. David, the man after God's own heart, right? <laughs> Basically, you know, the I mean, Me Too movement was alive and well. Because he and Bathsheba do not just have an affair. He takes advantage of her. Has her husband killed to cover up his sin. It's good to be the king. It was kind of his attitude. And, um, and yet, God uses even these flawed people. Uh, Abraham twice denies that Sarah is his wife. Basically, you know, tells these, these, uh, these kings that, you know, might kill him to take her. He's like, well, she's not my wife. You can have her do with her what you want. So the Bible is not a book of heroes. And as we study this chapter, you're going to see faith, faith is not this sort of technique to be able to triumph all the time and and, and sort of have it all together. Like um, Stephen prayed. Faith is about being a bre- one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So let's read this chapter. Uh, I know we've read a couple verses last week. We're just going to read the whole chapter again. I know it's long, but that's okay. I don't have a ton of things to say about the chapter. I'm not going to go through every single person um, on this list. You could like spend months on this chapter if you want, use this as a way to get to every story that's alluded to here. But I don't think that's the point. So we're going to um, go through this rather quickly. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, remember last week, this is just a quick review. That's not a very good translation um, because it makes it seem like faith is a feeling or faith is like an attitude, but a better the, the word talked there where it says faith is the assurance, uh, it, it, that... It's not a very good translation. It's better than the old NIV translation that I grew up with, which says, faith is being sure of things hoped for. Like that really pushes it all the way to, it's just a feeling of being sure, right? Without having any doubts. Of course, a lot of people that have faith in the Bible are also full of doubts, right? And so that's a really unhelpful way to translate that verse because it makes it seem like if you have faith, then you never have doubts or struggle with anything. But in actuality, this word translated assurance is the word for a title deed. And and a title deed means you own the house. If you have the title deed, it's something tangible. It's not just a feeling. Like you have it, you can look at it. If you wonder, did I really buy this house? You can go back and you can look at the title deed. Now, of course, most people that buy houses don't really actually have the title deed. The bank does. So you have a little mortgage certificate that says you owe the bank the money, but the title deed, whoever has the title deed, they have the house. And what Hebrews has been saying is the title deed we have is what Christ has secured for us by his life and death. And we have every right to come boldly before the presence of God, worship him, speak to him about matters of mutual concern, which is, I think, the best way to think about prayer listen to him without having to run away screaming because what he asks of us is impossible. No, he gives us his grace. He welcomes us into his presence. And we have every right because Jesus lived and died our place. And faith celebrates that reality. It's not just feelings. And that is what the people of old lived by. In other words, God promised and that defined reality for them. Because God is one who cannot lie and one who will not change his mind. So that, with that understanding of what faith is, I think the rest of the chapter will make more sense. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Not because faith means, well, I just kind of think about it and it just feels like God created the world. No. How do we know God created the world? Because he tells us. You weren't there. I wasn't there. You can't repeat it, so it kind of falls outside the boundary of what science can quote-unquote prove, but God tells us what's true, and faith means we trust what he has said. You see? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That means his story is one that continues to speak to us. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The key to pleasing God is believing what he says. And you see this in the story of the fall and the way sin came into the world. Ultimately, well, the thing that Adam and Eve did that got them kicked out of the garden and broke the relationship with God is they didn't trust what he said. They looked at this fruit. God said, do not eat it. It looked good to them, and so they ate it. They trusted what looked good to them and what they wanted to do rather than what God said. In some ways, actually, that, that, that whole story of the garden, you know... The, there's nothing really wrong about the tree and the fruit, except God said you shouldn't eat it. It's a focal point of obedience. When God says something that doesn't look good to you, what will you do? See, it's easy to obey God when you know disobeying Him would bring shame and humiliation and all kinds of wretchedness to your life. And then you're like, well, look at how I obeyed God. Well, of course. But what about when sin and the way that you know is not right looks pleasing to the eye and good for food. And that's why trusting God's word is at the heart of what faith is about. Now, without, without uh, sorry, verse 6, And without faith is it impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But why? Well, because God has said that. It's not just because you kind of were gazing on your navel one day and decided, I think God really like rewards those who seek him, so I should seek him. No, your warrant for faith, the reason that you should have confidence that you come to him is because he says, come to me. Come to me. And when Jesus comes, he amplifies, he sort of shouts it with a megaphone. Come, all you are heavy and weary laden. But Jesus wasn't the first one to say that. Isaiah 55, God had already said it. Come, you without money, come, buy and eat the richest affair. That's why we believe that he rewards those who seek him, because he said it. And faith trusts the promises of God. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see how this passage, it doesn't want to say, Noah was a great guy. You should be like him. No, it keeps saying faith was credited to them as righteousness. The, the writer in Hebrews is going out of his way to make sure you don't think that these are just wonderful people who, like, earned righteousness by being so good. They trusted God, and not even perfectly. By faith, verse 9, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Reminds me of Martin Luther's great little line. He says, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. That's a great, that's a great summary of the life of Abraham. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. How often we ex- expect God to tell us where he's leading us before we'll take a step. Rather than trusting who he is. And he went out. He was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, what we call the promised land. And he went out, not knowing where he's going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, they lived in the promised land like it was theirs, but it wasn't theirs. But it was theirs because God had promised it. And so that defined their reality, even though it wasn't theirs yet. It was as good as theirs, and they lived according to the promise. They lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking toward the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Not at first, though. Remember what she did? She laughed. She laughed. Then she had to name the child, what? Isaac, which means laughter of God. We named our child Isaac. Because when we was doing the ultrasound, he did a little flip. And the technician laughed and said, I've never seen a baby do that. Yeah, yeah no extra charge. You know, a little bit. Um, Therefore, verse 12, from one man, and him as good as dead, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, in other words, where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is very interesting, this next verse. He, meaning Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Have you ever wondered why does Abraham do that? It's because he reasoned that even if I put him to death, even though it doesn't make any sense to me why God would do that, because God promised that through my son would come this great nation. God has to have a plan. If I'm going to put him to death, God must be able to, God could raise him from the dead. But God's promise will have to come true, whether I can figure out a re- way it's going to come true or not. Does that make sense? Right? Verse 19, no, verse 19 I already did. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Do you remember this story? It's a very fascinating little story. Jacob basically says, hey, go by this cave So you can bury my bones, even though God is going to take Israel into bondage in Egypt for 400 years, but we're coming back. So go buy this cave and bury me there, because that's where we're coming back to. Even though he knew they were going for 400 years, he lived and he had himself buried because he knew the promise was true and they'd be back. Aligning himself with God and God's people is bearing the reproach of Christ because Christ is the promised one. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She allied herself with God and his people." And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, there he is, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's the tradition of what happened to Isaiah for speaking truth to power. They put him in a hollow log and they sawed him in two. but I want to make a few kind of applications. I'm not going to go back through all of that stuff, but what do we think of kind of this thing as a whole? Well, I already told you, like the first thing, make sure you understand how to actually read the Old Testament. One of the things that we tend to do here in RUF, because a lot of people that come to RUF have come from church backgrounds, but it's amazing to me how few people have ever really read the Old Testament. And if you have read the Old Testament, you haven't read it in a Christocentric way. In other words, a lot of people know the little stories in the Bible, but they don't know the big story. All the little stories find their place in the big story, the meta narrative, which begins in Genesis 3, where after sin comes into the world, God promises that he would preserve the seed line of the Messiah who would come through the woman and who one day would crush the head of the serpent. And the whole rest of the story of the Old Testament is whether God will be able to keep that promise. And there are two great threats to that promise. One is all the various enemies, who aren't just enemies of Israel, they're enemies of God and his promise, doing the bidding of Satan who would stamp out the coming of the Messiah, the one who would crush his head. But God preserves his people over and over and over again. That's why books that would seem rather insignificant like Ruth are in the Bible. You know this. Ruth is David's great-great-grandmother. And it says that at the very end of the book. That's a story not just about how you could glean stuff from the field, so that's interesting. It's really about how God preserved the seed line of the Messiah In a time of drought, when women whose husband had died, who had no hope, were preserved. Not just for the heck of it, but because God was preserving the seed line. But the other great threat to this promise is God's own people and the way they try his patience through their sin and their unbelief. And at times, if you read the Old Testament, you could argue that that's the greater threat to his promise. At one point in the book of Jeremiah, the the, the heartache of God is revealed in ways that are astonishing. Isaiah says things like, you know, you deserve death for the way you've scorned my promises and run after other lovers, but how, how can I let you go? I love you so dearly, but you've broken my heart and you deserve death, and God reveals this care in his own heart. Nevertheless, he commits to redeem his people, to make them clean and beautiful in his sight, and marry himself to them. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, we talked about this at the men's Bible study last night, is Isaiah 54, 5, where God says, your maker is your husband. God didn't just create us to be his little worker piece, but to marry himself to us, even though we're not really a very choice bride but he makes us a choice bride. It's an astonishing chapter in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 16, where God talks about Israel and he says, I basically found you an abandoned child still covered in your mother's blood. You were as good as dead, abandoned, turned out into the wilderness. And I picked you up, I cleaned you off, I raised you, I made you beautiful, I married you. And then you took all the beauty that I gave you and clothed you with, and you used it to run after other lovers. But still, Ezekiel says later, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and move you to obey my commands. Even though I made you beautiful and you used that beauty to run after other lovers, I'm still not done and I'm still not going to give up. That's the faithful, promising God that all these people trusted in. Now, what's fascinating is you go through this. You know, they're aliens. They're aliens in a place. But think about this. I know a lot of people like that, that song, I'll Fly Away. I don't particularly like that song. Because it's not the biblical picture at all. The biblical hope is not that we just get out of here. The biblical hope is that the new heavens and the new earth come down. So here's what's fascinating. Living here on this place, this world, in some level, it's like living in the promised land before it's yours. This is why the Bible uses this imagery that we're resident aliens. Uh, Peter says this. I love this little phrase. He says, "Um, live your lives here as strangers here in reverent fear. That's the way you're to live, as resident aliens. You belong here, but you don't belong here the way things are here now. But it's not that you're made to fly away and cast off your earth suit. You know, I I hear some, like, worship songs, I'm just like, no, that's not the point at all. It's not like, get free of my body and just, like, ascend onto a cloud or fly away someday. That's not what we're longing for. We're longing for all things to be made right, including this place. So we're here, there's a sense in which, yes, I was made for this, but I wasn't made for this. And there's this kind of weird tension that we live in. C.S. Lewis calls this the inconsolable longing. And, and he, he writes about this a lot. One of the, the, the best places is an essay called Transposition. This is in his book, The Weight of Glory and Other... Uh, addresses. I want to read you this quote. He talks about this desire for a far-off country, but it's not like a disembodied state. That's not what we long for. We long for a far-off country. He says, in speaking of of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency, I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but this is all a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers— The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. It's profound, profound thoughts. And if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you hear echoes even in what he's trying to do. We were made for something that's beautiful, and we know it. You know, a lot of people, like the existentialists, want to say we live in this cruel and different universe. That's not really accurate. It's more true to say that we live after a relationship rupture. We don't live in an indifferent universe. We live in a universe that's frustrated and with ruptured relationships between us and the creation, us and other people, even us and God. But we're called to live in this strange land, keeping our hope alive for the city we've been made for. I think verse 13 is one of the real challenges in this whole little section. It said, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the question I want to pose tonight. Have you acknowledged that you're a stranger and an exile on the earth? Are you still trying to live in a fantasy world like you could make this place perfectly comfortable? How much of our frustration and our consternation comes from refusing to acknowledge that we're aliens and strangers here, and thinking that we can somehow satisfy our hearts and be content. But what C.S. Lewis says, we're always trying to do that. We're trying to say, well, yeah, beauty moves us, but he says, don't, that's, that's not enough. Why does it move you? Is it like just this fanciful thing, or does it actually get you in touch with something you were made for? Is it drawing you towards what you were actually made for? Where and when do you find it difficult to acknowledge that you're a resident alien? Is it when things are good? When things are hard? See, Hebrews, the letter of the Hebrews, remember, is written to people who have begun to suffer persecution. The writer says, You've already suffered the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But the implication in the writer's words is that's coming. And then he has this whole long chapter about all the people of old who lived based on the promises and died without getting what they received. Why does he go into all this? Well, it's this. Hebrews considers it vital for you to know that you're a resident alien to be able to persevere through trials. It's vital that you understand the actual situation that you find yourself in. Faith knows that God's promises define reality. And God's promise is, if you've put your trust in him, you have a future. And that's true right now. Again, it's the reason Joseph wanted to be buried in the promised land, even though it wasn't his home yet. But he knew it would be. And he lived based on that promise, his prom, the promise to find reality. Faith wins great victories and suffers great persecution. This is also one of the fascinating parts of this. Look at, in, uh, it's around verse 35. The, the way it transitions from women receiving their dead back by resurrection, like that's pretty awesome, There are some resurrections in the Old Testament, right? Women receive back their dead by resurrection. And then just, right, the next clause, some were tortured. (laughs) So some some get their sons back who died, they get resurrected, and some were tortured. And the way it shifts from one to the other says, don't you dare say that some of them had faith and some of them did not. And you know what? I don't know if you ever watch these silly preachers on TV. But gosh, they lie so much about this. The idea that if you really had faith, you would never be tortured. You would never suffer. Read Hebrews 11. See, the the, the faith people, there's this whole movement called the Word of Faith that basically says faith is you speaking the word of God out loud and therefore God has to do what you say if you just say it with confidence. And sometimes people sing that way and they pray that way. It's terrible. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Faith is trusting the promises of God. It's not a way to control God to do what you want. That's actually the exact opposite of faith. Faith is trusting the promises of God not writing the script and saying, God, this is what you need to do. This is what I know you're going to do. And I'm going to speak it with confidence, and you're going to have to do it. That's the very opposite of faith. And some of you might have grown up with that kind of stuff, and you're trying to figure out every time things don't go right. So even if you didn't get the really kind of unabashed, heretical version of that, a lot of us have gotten like weakened forms of that, which are still deadly. Even if you get a little bit of that virus, it starts to spread and sow doubt and unbelief in your heart. Because you feel like, well, I prayed about this thing and it didn't go well. It didn't turn out the way I wanted, so I must not have had enough faith. But by faith, some women received back their dead as in resurrection, and some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. And they were all... People who had faith and God's promises define their reality. Faith wins great victories and suffers great persecution, and none of them received what was promised. And he makes a big point of that. All of these people died. Even death does not mean that the promises of God have failed. And I suspect there will come a day, if it hadn't come already, when you will need to know that. Because there will be praise you, prayers you pray that you will think were not answered when people die. But faith, faith is not thwarted even by death. A couple concluding applications here. Are we waiting for a heavenly city or are we looking for present comfort? It all comes down to this really. Will you trust God and what he says or will we stubbornly hold to our interpretation of reality, what seems right to us? Faith is not a magic formula to transform your circumstances. Faith actually doesn't create anything or cause anything. It receives as an open hand. It has no merit. Faith has no merit. It's actually the renunciation of merit says, I have nothing. You know, one of the fa- my favorite stories is in the New Testament is where Jesus calls this poor Gentile woman a dog. You know that story? Like this woman comes and says, heal my son. And he says, why should I give the bread of the children to is- of Israel to dogs? And it's like, whoa, shocking story. Now I can't do justice to the whole story, but here's the point. You know what she says? She says, yes, I am a dog. But even the dogs have the right to eat crumbs from the children's table. In other words, what she says is, yes, I have no claim on you, but bless me anyway. Because she knows who he is and what he's like. And he says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Faith says, yeah, (laughs) I don't deserve anything, but bless me anyway. Do you have faith? you have faith. Faith does not define. Faith trusts God's definitions. We're called to let God define how he loves us. Often it's by chastising us and telling us to wait. That's going to come up in chapter 12. What does it mean to be a true child of God? It means to be one who gets chastised because he chastises and disciplines those he loves. Chapter 12 is strong. It's like, Is God going to be the one to determine what it feels like to be a child of God? Or are you going to determine that and then tell God what he needs to do? That's chapter 12. That's next week. How do we get faith? (laughs) Well, it's a supernatural gift of God. And as Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So this is what I would say. Ask him for it. It comes by hearing the word of God. Put yourself in in the stream of hearing it, and it comes by trusting it. Faith grows by being exercised. It's a, it's a muscle that if you don't ever use it, it kind of atrophies. It does. You know, I, I love this. John Wesley, any, some of you guys I know come from a Methodist background. John Wesley is like the founder of the Methodist movement. It's one of the largest denominations um, in existence right now. It, it's a tremendous man of God used... Um, greatly by God in this great revival in the 1700s. When John Wesley started preaching, he wasn't actually a Christian. He wasn't actually a converted man, and he came to realize it. He came to realize that he was trying to please God by his works, but he didn't actually understand what faith was, and he talked to this Moravian German missionary guy named Peter Bowler, and he asked him what he should do. And you know what Peter Bowler said? Peter Bowler said, Preach faith, Until you find it. In other words, even if you don't believe it's true, start taking God at His word. Start teaching people that they need to have faith. And who knows? You might actually hear what you're saying and God use it to open your ears. So don't be like, well, don't be passive, in other words. Like, read the Bible like it's meant for you. Come to worship. Like it's meant for you tell people hey this is this is good this is true speak like these words like we did the call to worship speaking about who god is and what he's like say those things out loud and say lord i believe help me in my unbelief and ask your friends to pray for you make much of the various means of grace prayer the word of god the sacraments, in the context of God's community, try it on. Come live with us. Come be with us. Come to a small group. Sit down with one of us for coffee and say, you know, I've been reading the Bible. I just don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about it. We'd love to help. Sometimes when I sit down, people have questions like, I never thought of that. And it really helps me. That's why I love this job. <laughs> right? Right? Once you have faith, you'll know it's what you were made for. Because Adam and Eve, just like you, were made to trust the promises of God. Even in the midst of this world that's not yet the way it should be. Let's pray, and then I'm going to teach you a new song. It might be a new song for some of y'all.